This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 422. David Ruby on evidence based artistry. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. You know, it's not every day that you get to meet a medical librarian, and it's really not every day that you get to meet one that then becomes a phenomenal hypnotist. Hey, it's Jason, and welcome back here to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, and you're about to dive into a conversation that I recently had with David Ruby. Now, I've known David for a number of years now, and it was great to connect and dive deeper into this conversation, specifically on not only his introduction to hypnosis, but also to the journey of the other side of his world and the work that he's previously done, and how that's really informed an interesting take on how we begin to approach learning and our skill set, and even how do we customize to the client in front of us based upon this mindset of evidence-based hypnosis. We're going to dive into the conversation in terms of how, unfortunately, a bit of a chance injury became one of the ways that he first really became fascinated within this industry, as well as looking at how, as a profession, we can begin to elevate each other and really bring in themes of all things such as ancestral memory into the work of hypnosis. From research to ancestral memory to then medical librarian, this is definitely one you have got to listen to. You can head over to the show notes for this week's episode. It's number 422. So head over to worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash 422. That'll bring you directly over to see exactly how to interact with David, as well as his group, as well as his uh, business website as well. And while you're there, let's help you to grow a much stronger hypnotic business. Check out hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. There is no need to try to reinvent the wheel. There's no reason to try to invent everything from scratch. The backstory to the program that's now Hypnotic Business Systems is that I ran the office that I operated in Virginia for right at a dozen years, seeing thousands of clients. Now, I still see clients, but I'm no longer in Virginia. And because of that, it kind of allowed me to take this training community and program that I do and switch it up from originally being tell you what to do over the years. It also became a show you how to do it. But now one of the greatest strengths is the instant when you can achieve inside of hypnotic business systems as there's several done for you marketing campaigns that you can put into use right away. Check that out and watch the details. And also notice how at the hypnoticbusinesssystems.com page, it's like 95% other people telling you of their stories, their results, as well as their feedback on this program. So check that out. Join today over at hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. And with that, let's dive directly in. Here we go. This is session number 422, David Ruby on evidence-based artistry. My introduction to hypnosis was actually um, probably hearing about it in like a, uh, and this is actually going somewhere, hearing about it in like these very like Hollywood tones. And and that actually pertains to my job at the time was a medical librarian. I really was a skeptic of this. And I say this actually quite a bit. So I didn't really buy into this. No offense to hypnosis folks out there, but I, I really didn't. Um, but I was a researcher. So what do you do if you're a researcher is you go on PubMed. And I to this day, I go there a lot and you research it. 
So from a skeptical mindset, I was able to see a lot of evidence for it. And for me, the big one was, uh, I think, surgical anesthesia. So I found out that you can use it for that. I'm like, well, wow, I should learn this. I love that reference just to hop in real quick. That's one of those things that people often bring up in this type of chat. And it's where there's <laughs> someone who uh, not involved in our shared backgrounds here yet. She was talking about it. She goes, then I saw this research around surgical stuff. And I thought to myself, okay, that can't be faked. Yeah. That's gotta be real. Okay. I need to look at better research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was my origin story more or less. And um, from then I, I researched the hell out of it and I started taking hypnosis classes and really haven't stopped with that. Um, and then after probably a couple of years, after a year or two, I went to HypnoThoughts and I thought, well, I'll, I'll get certified. And I was told I should do this for money and then did it as a side career. And that's kind of started growing from there. That's where I'm at now. And yeah. And that background as the medical librarian, like what does that typically consist of? Uh, to be a medical librarian, you actually have to go to get a grad degree for it. I went to UW Madison and got a SLIS degree, School of Library and Information Studies, I believe is the acronym. And I was a teacher before that. So I went for a school school librarian that I worked at UW Oshkosh for a while as like a, I did like a second placement after student teaching. And then I worked there while uh, one of the librarians was on maternity leave. Uh, then I got a job at Aurora in Oshkosh at their hosp medical library at the hospital. And that that's kind of it. Yeah. So but yeah, I got a master's degree for research and um, also was a certified school librarian, had that certification too. So Got it. So like the day-to-day -day work of that, like what does that mostly consist of doing? Boy, a lot of crossword puzzles to be, no. <laughs> <laughs> this one actually might be a question for me because everyone's expectation of librarian would be I'm going to the library and to find out. The end of the story is the time she goes, everybody shut up. I finally get to say this. I can neither confirm nor deny I know what that is but I need to make a phone call. She was a librarian for the CIA and it was a group of families on a vacation together and a parachute washed up on shore. And she never got to actually use that phrase until that moment. It's like, so what does this job consist of? She goes, I really can't answer that. I'm assuming you're allowed to. Yeah. My, mine is not so cloak and daggerish. Uh, most of what I did was um, researching stuff for doctors and nurses and checking out uh, CPR manuals. But I did a lot of research for uh, doctors and nurses, and I did um, actually rehab department, the physical therapy rather, um, was great because they had all kinds of weird stuff. You looked up things like cupping and acupressure and different sorts of modalities. Uh, and so when I wasn't doing that stuff, I was looking up hypnosis studies and in my off time too. It wasn't just doing work time hours for that. But And I would like tell people about it. And yeah, so to answer your question, most of it was researching things for staff or for patients and I, um, and I do have like a caregiver mindset at heart. That's how I got into teaching and then enjoyed being in hospital. And I remember one time I had this one, I researched stuff for about grieving because her husband had passed away. And it was fascinating, you know, the process of it and how you could give people information about things that would help them. And I remember being in the cafeteria and her bawling in gratitude, mind you, but, you know, from the outside, they're seeing me hand this one, this packet of paper and like, kind of losing it and like, oh, this is going to be great. My boss is be like, we heard you made some patient cry on the cafeteria, Dave. And But that's what I did. I researched things for staff and patients, largely teach classes as well on how to find evidence-based practices, which is how I got the uh, idea for evidence-based hypnosis as a Facebook group to research the stuff and share it with people who might be interested in it. Yeah. And I definitely want to dive into that because it's where the background you have lends itself to a very 
I'm sure, interesting and different take in terms of what others would assume to be evidence-based, though. Let's dive into it from the angle, first of all, of the actual work that you do. What are the types of clients that you're currently working with? Uh, most of what I focused on lately has been athletes in my niche to get reach. Is that how it goes? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's the specialty to find your specialty. That's the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that one didn't catch on, you know, but we're we're workshopping it. Doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well, but what's great is three people are getting the joke right now and that's just making you and I happy. You know, it's the small things. It's the life. little things, yeah. It really <laughs> it really is. Um but I find that I, I enjoy working with athletes, high performance mindset folks, um, like for business or for squeezing the most out of life you can, and for these spiritual hippie types, which are a rare, rare find for me, but I, I find they're uh, enjoyable. Um, I also do a lot of work with core transformation and wholeness work from County Range Reyes, which lends itself to a more spiritual approach, but mostly athletes and performance mindset because I, I find they're fun to work with. It's, I don't mind working with trauma and things that are terrible. Uh, my, my mindset's always been always, but stuff is terrible. Stuff happens in the world. It's, it's going to happen whether I do anything about it or not. Uh, if I can help someone who's been traumatized or who's struggling, I can make a difference. And that's amazing to me, but it's, I resonate more with athletes because their mindset's so positive. And I started doing CrossFit about a year ago, which is like a friendly cult. Yes. <laughs> it really is. It really, yeah. But having that mindset for myself, I find that I resonate more with people who aren't helpless and who aren't, you know, victimized. I, I can associate with both. I can relate to both, but I, I relate more to people who are like, let's, let's do it. Let's make a change. Let's do as much good, get as much out of this existence as we can. And I find that that's where I resonate with a bit more these days. Well, there's there's the aspect of that, of it's the person who has accomplished something already. And I'd always say that the stereotype of what the general public would perhaps assume to be our clients are really not the ones who are calling. The person who's assuming everything is falling apart, nothing is going to help them, is just not necessarily that person who's also going to go, so I'm going to call someone about this and get some help. And that benefit of how, how we can isolate those strengths and what's in it in their story, what's the parts of them that are every reason why they don't have to be responding this specific way in this specific part of life. I've got to see if there's a through line, though, from that athletes and professional space to then, you mentioned hippies. Is there a through line? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think it's the searching for something. No, looking for something they haven't found yet or looking for things, how to get better, how to improve. Mm -hmm. And again, as much as I focus on athletes, because I, I tend to enjoy them and these spiritual hippie types and business folks, I also, I also say I've seen that people who uh, have been victimized or have had trauma and they're survivors and they're like, let's, you know, they have that same drive. So I focus on athletes probably because of being more involved in weightlifting and CrossFit lately, but because they tend to have that, that mentality from the start. But I've had people who've had like horrible relationship problems or you know, trauma or want to quit smoking for weight loss or any of the you know common ones. And they have that same mentality. So it's that type of person that I do tend to, I, I really enjoy that type. And I enjoy getting people to that place where they're not. Like they're, you know, things are going terrible and I want to get better. I enjoy getting them to that space. Like, well, what can you do? How, you know, what can we do to make this better? How is it going to be when you are over that? I guess it adds a positivity for me that I find kind of not addicting, but I find it it's fun. And I like bring that energy into clients, whatever they're doing. So it's, it's not just about the niche as much as it's about the type of personality 
either they have or that I can get them to that, you know, to laugh, to have fun, to, well, how's it going to feel whenever you're doing amazing, whenever you've got this result, when you have that, you know, you've lost 20 pounds or quit smoking or, you know, when you can just relax and breathe, what's that going to be like? I like getting people to that positive space. It's really, it's a fun, that's what makes this job really fun for me is getting people into like more positive states. I'm over here kind of laughing because as soon as you started that description, I flashed to one specific person who I worked with years ago and was basically, uh, I'll generalize the story though, the element of this that could make them, if they even heard it go, oh, he's talking about me. No, I've had like um, four different people as clients who were men in their 70s with beards down to their uh, navel who did uh, downhill skateboarding, you know, like you do. And it was just this, that was the image that popped in my head of one of them specifically, that it was just, he had left the corporate America space, he had gone into his own career and retirement, and it was just, you know, I hear <laughs> there, there could be the expectation of the word hippie, he used it himself, yet I go to the fact that he just had his belief systems dialed in, and that wasn't a bad thing, it was just he knew himself. And he goes, just here's this one thing though that I can't seem to crack. And it's, you find that person who's more connected to their understanding of who they are, anybody who ever, let's say, might hire um, a website designer or a writer to help kind of clean something up. It's that clarity to go, I would never say that sentence and said it said this way. And kind of that same tone appears with the athlete. Oh, and this happens you know, here's what I do. It's not that that injury or that mild, you know, ache means, nope, can't do it. It's like, no, I make these modifications and they're aware of their own strategies more so than many others. Yeah. I have a funny, uh, real quick gym story. Uh, I, when I first started going to the CrossFit gym and I, I went, cause I, one of the guys, the, the guy that owns it was at a um, networking group I was in and I liked him and I was um, actually another hypnotist said, you should join CrossFit. Actually, Kathleen Shannon, who was on your oh, show. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, you should do this. I'm like, what are you trying to kill me? Like, <laughs> well, not necessarily, but but I uh, I went and I we're doing front squats, and this is not a brag. It'll, this will be apparent later. But I, I did like I did a front squat of two fifteen, and like, why not a bail? Like, if I can't lift it, I'll, I'll just bail. So I went for two twenty five, hurt my knee, and the guy down like two racks down did like three twenty five. This is going somewhere, by the way. But he had like his first record, and I'm like, oh. I, messed up my knee. So I told the coach and like, oh, that's fine. Well, so you can't do this, do this instead. So they gave me some other exercise. So instead of like just going, oh, I'm injured, I can't do it. It was like, well, what can you do? You know, they could have said, oh, that's too bad. You, know, you can go home and rest. It was like, well, what can you do? And I like that mentality of finding out like what you can accomplish. Like it doesn't matter if you're, if you can deadlift a thousand pounds or if you can barely get the bar up, you know, that mentality of what can you do and how can you do this to get better and improve things. So I, I find that mentality is very inspiring to me. And I, I like that I've started to adopt that mentality personally. So let's look at this from that evidence-based hypnosis side of things, which um, not to kick off a scandal, but you catch that one. Uh, I would ask the question that, you know, evidence-based is one of those terms that is thrown around and, oh, there we go. <laughs> Did anyone hear that? That kind of sound just makes my day to go, oh, we found expertise. I am in. Uh, However, to be fair with the alternative, it is considered to be evidence-based, not just evidence, though kind of give us your working definition of what that truly encompasses. That size because evidence-based gets thrown around as such a buzz phrase or a catchword. 
Uh, for me, evidence-based implies, uh, when, I, when I did that as a librarian, evidence-based tended to be, there was like a large body of evidence supporting whatever, you know, supporting a certain chemotherapy protocol or supporting a certain medication. For hypnosis specifically, I would look at it at things like the Cochrane database articles where they look at like, they have a systematic review or a meta-analysis and they look at the whole body of evidence. And it doesn't have to be that, but generally speaking, you want, you know, randomized control trials, review articles, good ones, mind you. Uh, there, there are some bad ones. Uh, done by a peer-reviewed study, you know, something that's been looked at by people in that field. So for hypnosis, I would look at things like systematic reviews or randomized control trials, or look at enough articles where it's not just, I found one that supports what I want to believe. And this is not meant to throw it under a bus, but I have seen people get excited about, and I'll look at one example. There's one smoking study that gets cited a lot by us. I think because people see it and they get excited because it says basically hypnosis outperformed everything by a wide margin, which is great, right? That's what you want to hear. The catch to that is it's one study that wasn't a very good study, even if it was, it's one study and the other studies out there don't necessarily support hypnosis on its own. And there, there are probably reasons why that is, but hypnosis doesn't like dramatically outperform everything. If it does, there are reasons why. If it doesn't, there are reasons why too. And that's where I think, you know, the coaching relationship has a big role that you can't really test for as much in a study. You know, looking at like why they, why they smoke, what their triggers are, what their history is, you know, why they start, you know, what's keeping them smoking when that original purpose doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so there's still evidence that it works, but look at what everything says. Don't just pick the one that says what you want to believe. Right. So then from that angle then, I mean, what would you say if we had to isolate it and just simply say, so here are the, some of the red flags. Um, if you were referencing the one specific smoking study that I've seen, it's the one that when you read it carefully, you see that that high percentage of success was actually like um, 12 people out of 15. And I think it's fair to say 15 is a better study than some, but clearly not the absolute best thing that could be out there. Yeah. So I think if it's got like hundreds or thousands of people over several studies and it's been replicated, that's good. And I, it's good to get excited about a study, but keep it in context. So if it's the only study showing that, or if it's the study of like 20 people, or if it's like 100 people and like 30% dropped out and you know, it only had like, you know, it was for like a month or something, you know, looking at like enough number of people to be able to draw like an actual trend over enough time where it actually sustains itself and over enough studies where, you know, it's replicable, not just one person doing it. I would go back to, and I'm going to have to cheat and elongate my sentences as you can now probably can hear me typing as we're chatting here, which means that I'm basically wrapping up to then give a specific reference to, of course, episode number 19 of this podcast. Okay, this is like 420 something, so I'm allowed to have to cheat to find these numbers. Yet he was uh, a research coordinator at the University of Chicago and a big part of that conversation, it's session number 19, Greg Poljasic and the brain. Uh, not Pinky and the brain, but Greg Poljasic and the brain. <laughs> and it was referencing, he was referencing at one point, the popular What the Bleep Do We Know documentary. And what he said, though, in that conversation was worthwhile that I've, this has stuck ever since, which is that we can't say the research has necessarily proven. He goes, the danger of that is you might put yourself on the wrong side of history. So the preferred phrasing, at least in their research, was always current research now suggests. Yeah. Because then again, if you drive a car over 45 miles an hour, your head will fall off. 
Yeah, like if you if you try and run more, you know, a mile in less than four minutes, your heart will blow up. Right? Well, that's been proven, but uh, glad we got past that one there. Right. So, what what are some of those red flags that would pop? We're joking, people. Uh, what are some of those red flags that you would say we should be aware of? Aside from you know, it may just be the one study. How can we become better at looking, going? This one is valid. I think having a, having enough information to see is there more than one study saying it. If it's just one study and no one else is talking about it, there's probably a reason. Big ones, and this is a big pet peeve of mine, when people say things like hypnosis can cure cancer or cure COVID. Okay, prove it. I mean, that, that's one where uh, if you've had someone who, if you know someone who's died of cancer and someone's offering this solution and they don't back it up, I'm going to get a little pissed off about that because it's not fair. You know, if there's no evidence, no actual proof that it does that, then don't say it. I mean, I think you can look at like hypnosis can help people to, you know, heal more. It can help them to tap in their body's ability to to heal. And there are cases of spontaneous cancer, you know, remission. That's fine. But those are like exceptions. So don't say that it can cure cancer if you can't back it up. Well, I would go back to he's out of the Chicago area, Scott Giles. And we'll leave out what specific you know body of work he was referencing as his story that he tells. And it's just the point of going, it's really fascinating that this book proposes a really strong argument that hypnosis could cure cancer. It's also interesting that the statistical number the author presents is pretty darn close to spontaneous remission. And I'm not saying, he goes, I'm not saying that it's this or not this. I'm just saying, isn't that interesting? I am. Well, to answer your question, I think number of studies, longevity, and being from like a reputable source. Uh, if it's from a medical journal that's not indexed in PubMed, that's a bit of a red flag. And there are predatory journals that will publish pretty much anything. You could pay to have, I could pay to have, you know, the Dave Ruby protocol will cure everything and someone will take my money and they'll publish it. Everybody, you heard it here first, go to rubynosis.com and that's going to be now, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway, <laughs> I think looking at like, what does the general consensus say? And if there are exceptions, like that's, that's fine. Um, but like who's saying it, how many studies have they done? What, how, how many people have done it? How long has this study been going on? Um, I think it's Ellen Langer. She's the one who did the study on having older people listening to like music from when they were teens and being like environments. Are you, does this ring any bells? It does. Yeah. Right. There's some study, I believe it's Ellen Langer. If not, then someone can correct me and post edit or something. But she took people who were elderly and put them in this old environment where it looked like the rooms would look like when they were teenagers and played music from the 60s or 50s, whenever they were teens. And they actually started to get better. They started to act and move like they were young. And again, I'm the details are a bit foggy because I wasn't preparing that. But she didn't publish that for a long, long time because she thought no one would believe it. They'll be like, yeah, whatever. That's that's quackery. And she was probably right. And um, when it was published, it was revolutionary and they actually had acquired enough studies to basically prove it and it's been validated. Uh, my point is that there are some amazing things that can happen and there are things that we don't know yet. But until it's been proven or unless you have enough evidence to start to take that seriously, be a little skeptical or at least consider that that is the exception that doesn't disprove everything that came before it. On the other hand, a really well done study is one study. That doesn't mean that's wrong. It means it's one study. So I would weigh the greater evidence body more than one study 100% of the time. Well, I'd also just throw in, this is my take on it at times, which is to point out that what else, the question, what else was going on? That you and I are both familiar with the, you know, there's many sources that suggest this one, that the power of just simply asking the question 
what do you notice now drives the mind for something to be different compared to what it was before. At the same time, let's point out the person who is also responding to a study is also coming in with the expectation that this is what it's possibly going to do. And it's where I'll say it here. I had some people who maybe dropped down in the um, fan club of Jason Lynette when it was the, can you record something for uh, people to boost their immune systems around the pandemic? I'm like, well, here's the catch though. Point to your immune system. It's a construct of many different things. And I'm always the one to go, you know, we had to address this in a recent class on a different topic, of course, but it was the I want you to suggest my metabolism is going faster. It's like, well, we could suggest that there is, and careful, I'm sure some anecdotal evidence and people who have some interesting stories, there's some data that can be found that backs up this premise based upon these specific figures, though at the same time, let's approach it from a thoughts, feelings, actions perspective and go, what's that low-hanging fruit of behaviors that can now be motivated that then will then speed up the metabolism and or create the result that we want by then speeding up the metabolism. That was a yep. lot of words, but I, you were agreeing with me, so let's keep going. Sounds good to me. Yeah. No, no how, how, what are your thoughts on that in terms of pointing the suggestion where we can actually affect a change? And I'll, I'll be the one to say it here, so I'll take the hate mail on this one. Not <laughs> saying the things that make us as practitioners really excited, but instead point to a body of proof or current research suggest proof that this is what we can actually do. Yeah. I haven't really seen much evidence that you can just suggest metabolism gets faster and people start dropping body fat. Like it's nothing. Um, I guess I would go, I would point to art versus science. So I, I, maybe I'm not known as this. I, I, I kind of think of myself as like a science, sciencey guy. I grew up watching, um, you know, Mr. Wizard and then Bill Nye and stuff and watching documentaries I'm pretty sure you and I were watching Bill Nye, though, on Almost Live before we even watched him on uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy. A little bit of both, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Speedwalker. Oh, oh yeah. High five and white guys. <laughs> for the, um, I'm not going to say for those who don't know what we're talking about, for everyone who's not either me or you or uh, I think Duff. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a sketch comedy show that was out of the Seattle area and it was on Friday nights and it was pre-taped. So thus it was Almost Live. <laughs> The, the people who write the show notes are going to have fun with this one. Yes. Uh, anyway, I, well, I, I think of in terms of art and science. So science, do we have evidence that you can just give suggestions and this will be the result? And is it good evidence? Yes or no. Also, what does the science say does work? Well, you can say that you know any well-established diet works if you follow it. So do things will lead to that, lead to like better eating habits, lead to exercise, better sleep, drinking water, all the stuff that you probably heard from every diet guru in the planet. Don't just say that, you know, your metabolism will speed up. If that works, great, but that there's no evidence that's like a strong candidate for weight loss. In my my experience, my opinion, what I've read, I read a lot of the stuff because I'm a geek. What can you say? But what works? And we know what works, you know, and help people to make those good choices. You know, so I mean the science, follow what actually works, follow what's been shown and demonstrated to be effective, incorporate that. Um, then the art is the art, you know, what's the person in front of you? What are their, you know, what do they need? How do we do things that are maybe more tailored to the person, not just what's in a study? Well, let's let's go into that then, which is where there is a blend of that art as well as the science. And this is not, 
a criticism in any form of making a correlation here. Yes, there's a lot of people who have made use of the process core transformation. Yet it also goes into some more spiritual-based applications, which are going to be more anecdotal. And that's, again, neither a positive nor a negative statement. It's just from the angle of here's where, yes, let's lean on the research versus here, let's now access the ancestral memory. Yeah. With core transformation, what I'll give Connie Ray and Tamara and Mark a lot of credit for is they've actually done randomized control trials and they're doing ongoing research with core transformation. So I bring that up quite a bit. And I think they didn't have to do that. The other one I'll mention is uh, the RTM protocol with Richard Gray and Dr. Um, Dr. Frank Bork. If you haven't talked to Richard Gray, Richard Gray is a wonderful human being, very smart guy, and they do a lot of research ongoing and they really support it with evidence base. I'll get back to core transformation in a minute, but there are people that are actually testing this stuff and basing what they're doing on what the scientific body of evidence says and incorporating that. You know, there are a lot of people incorporating neurology and biology and what we know about how the brain and mind and body works and basing suggestions around things we know that the body and mind will do. Uh, core transformation can touch on spiritual stuff, so can wholeness work, um, but it's based on principles of how we seem, how the mind seems to be working. Like any feeling, behavior, or thought ultimately has some positive intention. And it may not be your positive intention as much as what that part wants, but it is a part of you. That may be kind of strange to say, but it wants something. And the theory is it wants some core state. And if that's like spiritual growth or smoking or eating cheesecake at three in the morning, whatever it is, it ultimately wants some kind of quote unquote core state. And they've actually tested that um, that it works. I don't know if they can test that like that's what your psyche actually wants as much as this protocol appears to have this result over X amount of people over X amount of studies. Did that go too far off the rails? No, I love that. And, okay. and that balance really becomes let's use the evidence as a grounding point, as a launching point perhaps, yet then here's what the client brings to the table, both consciously and unconsciously. And that's where the artistry of it does need to come in and not necessarily to go, okay, well, you just talked about this memory. I don't have any research that talks about being on the front porch with the grandparents in the rocking chair, but we have to then customize to then what the person brings to the process. I tend to think of the science and the research is sort of like a base. It's how we it sort of proves what we can prove. So I can I can just look at the evidence that says a randomized control trial show that core transformation was effective at these conditions over this amount of time. And that's our base. And if you look at core transformation, it's one of the few things I use that has an actual script. It's a script in that like it's a process, not not necessarily word for word, but well, I, I only edit that to say, could we trade that word out for outline rather than script? I would say process is probably more accurate, yeah, but yeah. but like it's a very procedural thing and a lot of the language matters, uh, but there is an art to it. It's not just, if you just read the, the script, because there is an actual script in the book, if you just read the process and fill in the blank with their words for whatever their condition is or whatever they're there to work on, um, Duff actually said that he found it works a lot of the time. You don't have to change anything. And that's great. What's better is if you actually are customizing to the person, and that's where the artistry comes in. If you notice their body symmetry changes, or if you notice that they say things in certain ways that imply stress or excitement or joy or relaxation, you can kind of pounce on that and use it. You know, So the art is like the interaction. It's working with the client, not just a script, not just a process. It's a human being that you know we get to interact with. The artistry is kind of, you know, it can be intuition going through your gut. It could be looking at and noticing things. Erickson was great with that. He would notice what people did 
he would utilize everything. You can't fit that into a study or a protocol. You can't say, and look for if their head tilts two degrees and their tone drops or they start, you know, speaking like a child. You know, those are things you kind of notice and you pick up on and you intuit and you utilize. So the artistry is, for me, it's having the scientific background of what, how the mind tends to work, how hypnosis seems to be working over time and over studies, and then how the person in front of you is responding, what they're doing, what they're not doing, how they're holding themselves, their tonality, um, trance indicators, for instance, and how do we use that? And a lot of it's based on intuition and practicing and seeing what works, seeing how the person in front of you reacts or doesn't react and let that kind of guide you. So talk a bit, you run a group specifically around evidence-based hypnosis. Share some, share some insights on that. Uh, what I tend to do is uh, I use that more as like an article review site and to kind of start discussions with people. There's some interaction. Other people have added stuff to what I'll do is I'll find studies or articles that are, I think, relevant to the field or that I find interesting. And I'll put it out there. I'll re read it, review it, ask for thoughts. And my goal with that is to start more of a conversation with people, not to say this is the answer, because frankly, it's not. But here's what I found interesting. Um, things looking at like placebo. There's a lot on placebo. Um, Nicholas Spanos has a lot on, he's since passed, he was a researcher that did a lot on um, trance. And is, an important, is depth of trance important? And the literature says generally no. Um, it's very subjective and it doesn't seem to affect the outcome of treatment. Um, but there are times that it might be useful and it's a lot of fun. So that could be experientially rich. But I'll look at that stuff to kind of see what does the evidence actually say? And that keeps me on my toes, keeps me sharp and keeps me informed. So I can see what does the evidence generally say. But I also couple that with what I find from my experience and other people's anecdotal stuff. And I don't think anecdotal is a bad word. It's just anecdotal. It's not going to have the same academic weight as 100 RCTs or a meta-analysis that covers all the literature. But I do that to see what the evidence actually suggests is true. Can I tell a real, real quick story? Did you ever hear of the um, how NASA developed the pen that would write in space? Oh, it's been years. I, I've heard the story, but I forget the details of it. So the, the story goes that um, NASA realized you can't use like a Vic or something in space. There's no gravity, so you can't use a ballpoint pen, pen. And obviously a jar of ink and a quill, that's not going to be great. And, <laughs> you know, zero gravity. So the story is that um, NASA spent years and millions of dollars developing a pen that would write in space. And the ancillary story is that, you know what the Soviet Union did? Used a pencil. Used a pencil. Yeah. <laughs> you know why I tell the story? Why is that? Because it's bullshit. It's a fake story. Yeah. The real story is that we all use pencils until uh, Apollo 1 caught fire and three crew members during a launch rehearsal died. And they, they wanted to avoid having things like shards of pencil shavings and graphite floating around. They wanted to avoid like fire, essentially. But that's important to me because I thought that was a great story. And it was on like West Wing, I believe. And uh, another hypnotist used it as an example on finding solutions and easy solutions. But I was willing to believe that until I thought, well, that's strange. Why would they do that if a pencil worked? And I, I researched it, right? Because my belief was one thing that I researched it and very quickly found out that I was, that was wrong. So what did that teach me? What did I learn from actually checking out the source and was it legit or not? I, I feel we're safe to reference again, the obscurity that you and I can go into here. Robert Wool, who used to do the TV show Arliss, had a comedy special that was on HBO, I think about maybe 15 to 20 years ago called Assume the Position. And it was basically, let me do stand-up comedy inside of a university classroom. And it's exploring 
all of the stories that are part of, you know, our culture that, okay, so here's the whole rest of the story of the, you know, one if by land, two if by sea, or here's the way that this story is told, or being that I'm originally from Virginia, let me also just throw in the nugget that just because the area is named after the person doesn't mean that they were the hero of the story. It sometimes just means they were the first one to get there. So it's where it's <laughs> the Belmar line. I don't know if this is a fact, but it sure sounds like it's true. And the elements get embedded into it the same as, well, this is where we end up with tradition. This is why you count down. No, no, no. This is why you count up. When at the same time, to look at it from more of the user perspective, and it's not that I say that's right after the suggestion because it solidifies the change. I said that's right to give your reference because they made an adjustment. And that then created the assumption and that, yes, activated the change. But the real reason that I said that's right is because of what actually happened during the process. And it's similar to, well, the same way into the problem is often the same way out of it. We use anchoring often to help our clients. And by definition, many of the client's issues relates to some form of anchoring. Agreed. Actually, I, I when I took a Michael Watson class, I, this should be like a drinking game for how many people I named reference. <laughs> but like he had a, a point that if you just took anchoring and got really good at it, you could solve just about any problem. I think a lot of that was basically so we didn't focus on learning every technique as opposed to getting good at what it was and reading the client. But I thought that was it was a nice little nugget and it really stuck with me. Yeah. So then what's the uh, next step of this? I know as we're, we're recording this before HypnoThoughts occurs, you're speaking there on some of these themes. Where do you see this evidence-based movement continuing to grow inside of the industry? I expect it'll be like a truck hitting a brick wall pretty No, I, I kid. <laughs> what I hope is that we can continue to learn more. I think we've already started. James Marlwin Harrison, you know James, right? Yeah, he actually is writing a book on um, incorporating some of the science about it. So we've kind of, we've talked shop a bit. And there are a few people that are interested. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Bork and Dr. Richard Gray and Lisa, I forget her last name. They've actually written a book on uh, evidence. Basically, it's like evidence based behind NLP and how it's been used in certain trials and how the principles are actually like sound. Where I think it's going to go, where I hope it goes, is that I'm able to keep referencing this stuff and they're doing science research on it. Like Irving Kirsch has done a bunch and there's a bunch of names. Hopefully we get better at figuring out like how this works and what it's useful for. And ultimately I would love it to be incorporated into modern medicine because there's a lot of evidence out there, but there's also a lot of studies that are kind of biased and some like some of it's really good. Some of it's like, it's so, so NLP research is not great overall. There are some exceptions. I hope that we continue to do quality research and show this is a viable modality. Also, I'm seeing a lot of it in the last few years where it's become more of a combined modality where they'll, they'll pair it with other modalities and they work hand in hand. So that integrative sort of thing where we realize that doctors are not our enemies and they realize we're not quacks or kooks and we can start to specialize this, make this something where it's, you know, there's some established protocols and there are things that are accepted mainstream medicine because it's a powerful modality and not enough people are using it. Well, I throw a statement out here, which it's entirely up to you to agree or go, eh, maybe not. Uh, yet I would say that here's that, but I know it wasn't you saying that, oh, the doctors don't believe, the physicians don't believe. I think it's more either it's a balance of just to use the word politely, ignorance, 
And I think, well, there's three parts. Uh, one part ignorance and said in a clinical, non-judgmental way of just they don't yet know what they don't yet know. And they very clearly know their specific skill set. I forget which podcast it was a few weeks ago that I told the story of going into the hospital with my wife. She's about to have our son and the doctor looking at her and saying, I haven't been trained in or get in natural childbirth. Let me get someone who does that more than I do because I just specialize in the medically assisted, which wasn't someone trying to force a belief system or force a decision on us. It was just to go, that's why we have so many people on staff here. Let's get this one. So one part of it would be just the ignorance. The other would be we are coming out of an era, careful here, I'll take the fall on this one. We are coming out of an era, buckle up, of some organizations that were trying to use more fear-based tactics to retain their members. And the lights have been turned on in recent years and people just went, oh, I couldn't verify any of that. I'll let you all decide exactly what that means. As well as, I'm going to go business on this for a moment, it's easier to external blame and say that's why they're not referring when instead it's the practitioner who hasn't yet facilitated a proper introduction, really bridged a connection, created a true business relationship rather than just, will you send me referrals? So it's one part, just I think all of it comes around to just outdated thinking, but I'm of the firm opinion and my knowledge now suggests that we are further along as a profession than many in our industry give it the credit for being. We all agree it works, and I feel the general public is further along than what many of us give it credit for. Yeah, my my experience in talking to um, – actually, I talked to the, the president of the hospital I used to work at, and he said, basically, if you can provide me good evidence that it works, I'll refer people to you. And I took him up on that. Yeah, so they're open to it. They want it. They want good. They want good information. And again, who wouldn't? You know, if I said this pill will, you know, cure baldness, great. What's backing that up? You know, what keeps us from being seen as a, a snake oil salesman, which we're not? But like, what? What's the evidence? What's backing that up? Why should I believe you over any other cure that's alleging things that doesn't work? So I think they want quality information. Specifically, they want like randomized control trials and systematic reviews. So if, you, if we can provide them good quality evidence, I think they will listen. Some people just don't know. Some people are under outdated modality thinking or outdated thinking rather, and they don't know. But some do, and some people are on board. And if you can show it to them and get results, I think they're definitely on board. So I kind of tie this all together with two things. Statement number one, only because you just recently brought it up. I think it's about time we all gave snake oil a second chance because- <laughs> <laughs> it's been labeled as the thing to not trust, but like, what if that's actually the cure-all and we're all just repeating outdated information? Come on, evidence-based boy, back it up. Second of all, this has been phenomenal. Where can people find you? How can they get in contact? Under the bridge by the hobble. There, no, actually, as as the time of this recording, I have, um, I'm changing my name. It's currently in production. My old business is Fox Valley Hypnosis, so foxvalleyhypnosis.com. If you're in Wisconsin, that might mean something to you. If not, it doesn't. Um, but I'm also transitioning to davidrubyhypnosis.com. So that's where to probably find me now. And uh, yeah, that's that's my business going forward. Excellent. Which this is episode number, oh, I just had it in front of me. I told you I was organized. 
Let me open the wrong <laughs> Google sheet for a moment here to quote my friend who teaches automations, uh, demon in the sheets. Here we go. Yeah. So this is episode number 422, but who's counting? Uh, you can find references to the various studies and other podcast episodes and David's websites and, uh, send me a link to, for the group or just walk us through it. How can, what can they search in Facebook to then find that group? Yeah. For evidence-based hypnosis, all you do is you type in evidence-based hypnosis, evidence -based three words, hypnosis. How the hell am I not in this one yet? And join. Boom. Now we're even further best friends online. This, Wonderful. this is session number 422. I referenced that because if you go to any of the show's episodes, worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash 422. Type in the numbers. We had one person calling me yelling that they tried to spell it out. I go, there's their numbers. But type in 422 at the end of that. That'll redirect you over to here. David, this has been really great in terms of diving into, I think, you know, the real takeaway is yes, let's lean on the body of evidence, yet also find those places to then customize to the person in front of us. Let it become that more artistic journey. And it's got to be a balance of the two. It's not the absolutist this versus that. Before we wrap it up here, any final thoughts for the listeners out there? Uh, thanks for listening. If you made it this far, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me, Jason. It was, it was fun. Here is the one thing you should do right away, not only to elevate this hypnotic profession, but also help others out. Wherever you interact with other hypnotists online, share this episode, share this program. It's one of the side effects that I didn't quite predict now that we're 415 plus episodes into this series, that it became an ongoing part of the dialogue and the continued growth of our profession. Similar to that, Go over to the show notes, worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash 422. That's where you can see exactly how to connect with David to continue this conversation. And while you're there, also check out hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. Guessing sucks. It's rather dangerous and slow. Instead, use what has been proven to work not only in the past, but also right now and will continue to work well into the future. Check that out. Get instant access to on-demand business Strategies you can put into use right away over at hypnoticbusinesssystems.com. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com. Hypnosis.com.